Tick-tock, tick-tock, thus goes the clock. Real time. We sleep in real time. We eat in real time. We work in real time. We play in real time. But what about our Christian faith? Do we live it out, really, in real time? Join us for the sermon series, Christianity in Real Time. James chapter 3, if you're able to stand for the reading of God's Word, James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above or that comes down from God, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we're not just opening here on Sundays any book. And we do not believe that this book is some group of human beings who were seeking to understand more about you, so they wrote what we call the Bible. We believe about this book that you gave it to us directly through those you raised up to write your word. So what we have in every book of the Bible and in all of the Bible is your inerrant, infallible, and absolutely sufficient word for all of life. What we have here is absolute truth. We don't worship this book, but we want to hear what it says. And I thank you for this opportunity that we can gather again under the authority of your word, and I pray the anointing of your Holy Spirit to hear your word and then by the power of your Holy Spirit to apply it to our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Here's a question for you. I would venture to guess that I'm not the only one who's ever thought about this question. How is it that two people can grow up in the same home, be taught by the same parents, go to the same church, be instructed by the same Sunday school teachers, be involved in the same ministry, and one of them will emerge as a faithful follower of Jesus 
as a part of his church, and another of them will walk away from Jesus not being faithful to him. How does that happen? How is it that two people in the same home can experience the same kind of love, the same kind of teaching, the same kind of support, and yet one becomes a person who loves Jesus, operating his or her life according to the Word of God, and the other person rejects Scripture as the Word of God and rejects Jesus as Lord. Well, at some level, that happened with James and Jesus. James was the half-brother of Jesus. They grew up in the same home. They lived in the village of Nazareth. Uh, they shared the same room, although most likely, given the nature and character of homes in that day, there weren't a lot of individual rooms. There was one big room, and attached to that big room was a place to cook. And when they got ready for bed at night, they just laid out what we would call pallets, and they would lay them out side by side, and they would all sleep together in the same room. And what if it were so that every night James slept next to Jesus? Uh, they shared the same environment. Uh, they would go out in the morning and when they were little, they would run down the same lanes. They would go outside the city and they would ascend the hill together. They would get up on the mountain there just outside Nazareth and they would look down into the valley and they would run down the hills and they would be chasing each other or racing each other and then they would run across the valleys. They would work together in the Joseph's carpenter shop. They would receive the same teaching from Joseph and Mary uh, learning the Torah together, praying the prayers together, remembering what it meant to be a Jewish person or a child of God. And yet there is no evidence that James had any commitment to who Jesus really was until after the resurrection. They grew up in the same place, had the same kind of influences. Just very quickly, turn to the Gospel of Luke with me. The verses will be on the screen, but Luke chapter 2, verse 40. Joseph and Mary bring Jesus into the temple to dedicate him to God, to have him circumcised on the eighth day. And the text says, the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. We read... In Luke chapter 2, verse 40, when Jesus went with Joseph and Mary when he was around 12 years of age to the city of Jerusalem for a festival and he was sitting among the scribes and Pharisees, the leading teachers of the day, and he was confounding them. And the text says, all those who heard him were amazed at his understanding. James most likely would have heard him teach when James was an adult, and just as an example of his teaching, turn to Luke chapter 6, verse 43. Luke 6, verse 43, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. 
The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my word and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears my word and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, Immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Now, I can't say conclusively, I don't know, but what if James heard that kind of teaching from Jesus? And yet he didn't accept Jesus. He didn't affirm Jesus except as his half-brother. In fact, Jesus' family was so mystified by him, including his mother, that when he heard that he was in, when they heard that he was in trouble with the scribes and Pharisees and they were out to get him, uh, they devised an intervention. Luke chapter 8, verses 19 through 21. Listen to what these verses say. Verse 19 of Luke chapter 8. Then his mother and his brothers came to him. His mother and his brothers. James would have been there. They But they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside. Now, the crowd being Jewish and Jewish being family-centered, this is what they thought. When he hears that mama has come, he's going to leave whatever he's doing and go home because home is always first. Now, mama's come. They have heard about what is going on with him. And she says to her sons and daughters, the other sons and daughters, the boy needs some good chicken soup for the soul. So they decide to go get him, bring him back home and kind of teach him about how he needs to speak of God, but not in ways that irritate these powerful and influential religious leaders. So when they say to him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you, listen to what he said. My brother and my brothers, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. He had just taught that in what we know as the Sermon on the Mount that we just read in Luke 6. And he says it again here. But James who grew up in the same house and heard the same teaching, did not get it. James was not stupid. But until God opened his eyes to see the truth, until God opened his ears to hear the truth, until God opened his heart to receive the truth, the only wisdom that James had available to him was the wisdom of the world. Now, you and I need to know that there are those sitting here this morning, and there are those all over our community and all over the world whose only wisdom available to them is the wisdom of the world. It's the only wisdom with which they can operate until God opens their eyes, unstops their ears, makes receptive their hearts. 
so that we can see who God is and know who God is as he invades our lives by the power of his Holy Spirit. And by that same Spirit, he brings us under conviction for our sin and calls us to surrender to Jesus as Lord. And when we surrender to Jesus as Lord, we receive with that the beginning, and I want to underscore the word beginning, the beginning of an entirely new kind of wisdom. It's not the wisdom of the world that we begin to reject and see it for what it is. We begin to receive the wisdom of the Word of God. Can I ask you this morning, do you operate today out of the wisdom of the world or out of the wisdom of the Word of God? It's like asking another question that really is the same question. Do you know Jesus as Lord or don't you? Because if you have not bowed before Jesus as the Lord of your life, if you've not heard and received and believed and based your life on the gospel, the wisdom of the word of God is not available to you. It's available only to those who have responded to Jesus as Lord and received him as Lord. If you're not a believer, would you this morning open your heart to the power of the Holy Spirit and would you this morning beg Jesus to save you? Beg Jesus to save you. Because we have no hope in this world with the wisdom of the world. It offers us nothing. We need the wisdom of the word of God and there are only two kinds of wisdom. Uh, There's the wisdom that God gives us, and there's the wisdom that the world gives us. Uh, Turn to Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. This is made very clear in the Gospels as Jesus teaches. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate. This is an imperative. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. People have asked me over the years, do you believe in this world that most people are saved in the end or most are lost? Well, Jesus just answered that question. Truth is that most will remain under the judgment and wrath of God in the end. Only a few will enter into the narrow gate. But you can be among that few even today by surrendering and submitting your life under the conviction of sin through repentance and faith to Jesus as Lord. There was in the late first century the development of a discipleship manual because the mandate of Jesus was taken seriously, go and make Disciples, that disciple, that discipleship manual is called the Didache, the teaching, and it opens with these words. There are two ways, one of life and one of death. And there is a great difference between the two ways. That was true then, it is true now. There are only two ways. And there is a great difference between these two ways. 
Now turn to James chapter 3 because what I want to do this morning in this text is I want us to see wisdom as God shows us wisdom. And then secondly, I want us to contrast, as the text does, the wisdom of the world with the wisdom of the Word of God. Let's first of all look at how God shows us true wisdom. We see it in the structure of the text. Look at verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you by his good conduct? Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. And then go down to verses 17 and 18. I'll just read the beginning of verse 17. The wisdom from above or the wisdom from God. What James does in the structure of this text is he sets before us at the beginning the wisdom of God. He sets before us at the end the wisdom of God. And in the middle, he talks about the wisdom of the world. The wisdom of the world is framed by the wisdom of God because the wisdom of the world has nothing to offer us. There's a real and radical contrast between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. One of the problems in many churches is that we want the wisdom of the Word of God, but then when we talk about what we're going to do, and how we're going to conduct ourselves as a church, particularly when it comes to what we're going to spend money on, we operate with the wisdom of the world rather than the wisdom of the Word of God. Earlier this week, I was in a class, participating in a class at our Baptist seminary in Lviv, Ukraine, and we were talking about how to contextualize the work of the church in the context of an ever-changing world. And uh, when we got to the end of the class session that I was teaching, uh, we opened it up for questions and answers. And the first question I got from Lviv, Ukraine, from a pastor in that city was, can you help me help our leaders? Because we need to be under the authority of the word of God, but the leaders in this church operate by business models and they want to operate by the wisdom of the world and not by the wisdom of God. That's true. it's, It's a problem everywhere And what we need, we must have as a church because the church is distinctive from the world is the wisdom of God. By the way, you can pray, if you would, for the teacher of uh, that class and that class itself. There were 14 men in that class and the teacher, who's a good friend of mine, one of our IMB missionaries, And at the end of the class, he contracted coronavirus, and all 14 members of the class contracted coronavirus. The only person in the class that didn't get it was me because I was thousands of miles away by Zoom. So pray for them, and uh, particularly him, as he has to continue to teach and is uh, dealing with some of the repercussions of COVID-19. Look at the source of true wisdom. Verse 13, who is wise and understanding? That's where wisdom comes from, understanding. The word understanding is a word that has to do with knowledge of the word of God. How do I get wisdom? The baseline is that I must know God through his word. I can't know God apart from his word. 
So to be wise, I must grow in the knowledge of the Word of God. I must have the kind of life where I stand on the Word of God. I stand under the Word of God. I stand in the Word of God. I listen to the Word of God. I learn the Word of God. I love the Word of God. I can't lead apart from the Word of God. That is the baseline for wisdom. Who is wise and understanding among you? The phrase among you is assuming that there are people in that church that are not wise because they're not growing in the grace and knowledge of the Word of God. And yet they're trying to express wisdom, and the only wisdom they can express is the wisdom of the world. Here's the source of true wisdom. It's real simple. The more you're in the Word of God, the more wise you become. The less you're in the Word of God, the less you will have wisdom. The substance of true wisdom, it's always shown, it's always shown in our conduct. Verse 13, by his good conduct, let him show his works. Now people look at us, they listen to us, they watch us. And when they look at us and see us, they learn whether or not we are wise. Look at the structure of wisdom. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Meekness means that we're under control of the Holy Spirit. Our lives are submitted to the authority of the Word of God, and our lives are led by the Holy Spirit. And we don't walk in arrogance and pride. We walk in humility before God because wisdom doesn't puff us up. Wisdom brings us low. One of the outcomes of wisdom is that we increasingly see how little we are and how much God is. We see how small we are and how big God is, and we submit ourselves to the authority of the Word of God. Now let's contrast, as James does, the wisdom of the world with the wisdom of the word, look at your Bibles. It's right there in front of you. Look at what James does first in verse 14. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and do not be false to the truth. Look down at verse 16 where he repeats this. Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. This is worldly wisdom. What he's talking about here is what is found always in worldly wisdom. What's found? Bitter, jealousy, and selfish ambition. When worldly wisdom invades a home, it creates jealousy. When worldly wisdom invades a church, it creates jealousy. It creates selfish ambition. It creates the kind of people in church that want their way and they will do anything to get it. That's worldly wisdom. It's operating by the world. It's competitive and that competitive nature creates conflict and that conflict brings confusion and that confusion gives birth to chaos. If there is bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart and you see that 
and you do not address it, it means that you do not have the wisdom of God and you don't have the wisdom of God because you're not possessed by the Spirit of God and you ought not to boast in your worldly wisdom because when you boast about what you want and what you desire that you think is right, you are lying not only about the truth, you're lying to the one who is the truth. Where bitter jealousy and selfish ambition exist. He uses in verse 14 the phrase bitter jealousy. Go back to Hebrews chapter 12 The other place in the New Testament, this word bitter in connection to something else is used. Uh, Paul in Hebrews 12 is encouraging believers who are facing great difficulty and danger. They're being persecuted. And Paul says in Hebrews 12, 12, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet. So what is lame may not be put out of joint, rather be healed Now look at verse 14. This is an imperative. Strive for peace and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for it. Believers in a local church should work for, pray for, strive for, sweat for, toil for peace with God and peace with each other and for holiness and Holiness means we're set apart for God. We want to be pure before God. We want to live lives that are noble and righteous before God. Verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. And here's the phrase, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled. Verse 16, that no one is sexually sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. Paul says that when there's a church where there's worldly wisdom at play, then you will see people operating with roots of bitterness. This goes back all the way to the Old Testament when the people in the wilderness did not get what they wanted. They were hungry and they wanted food and they were thirsty and they wanted water and it wasn't coming on their timetable and they became bitter because their way They didn't get their way. Where that exists in a family or a church or wherever, it will bring ruin because of the source of this wisdom. Listen to what, Paul, listen to what James says. Verse number 15, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, Verse 15, it is earthly, unspiritual. What's the last word there? It's demonic. Now, I didn't write this. James wrote this. Do you believe the devil can get inside a church and destroy a church? Yes. Do you believe demons can be turned loose in a church and attack people? Not possess people, but attack people. Yes. And when we operate with worldly wisdom, James says, that's demonic. That's from hell. And the Spirit of God is not in it. Can't be in it. Won't be in it. It belongs to this world and the ways of this world. When we see it, 
when we see it, we ought to point it out. We should not let it go unaddressed because it represents the kind of demonic behavior in a church that over time will destroy the church. The Spirit of God will vacate. The presence of God will be gone. You can preach and you can teach, you can sing, you can do whatever you want to do. That seems to be godly and God is gone. What we need is the wisdom of the Word of God. So James tells us, Verse 17, the wisdom that is from above or the wisdom that is from God. And he gives us seven characteristics of this wisdom. It is pure. It is unmixed. The prayer of every person who belongs to God is this. God, all I want is you. All I want is you. All I want is to do your will. And I know your will is revealed in your word, so I'm going to put my life under the authority of your word. I'm going to stand in your word. I'm going to pour my life into your word. I'm going to listen to your word. It's pure. Then it's peaceable. It seeks for peace. It strives for peace. It's gentle. A gentle... I mean, sincere. We're kind and caring and gracious and loving and supportive and encouraging of one another. It's pure, it's peaceful, it's gentle, it's ESV translates this open to reason. It really means that we have a well-placed confidence and the confidence is not in ourselves. The confidence is in God. It's full of mercy and good fruits. The good fruits of mercy are that we treat people in a way that God has treated us. God has been gracious to us and kind to us and forgiving to us. He has not treated us as our sins deserve. Do you know that in a church people can hurt your feelings and a church people can do things to you that are harmful? If you have been mercied by God, you extend mercy. You don't claim your rights. You don't feel yourself as needing to be heard or needing to voice your opinion about the way you have been wounded or hurt. God has been merciful to all of us. He has not treated us in the way that we deserve to be treated. And that's how we treat one another. We're full of mercy and good fruits. We are impartial. That means we look at everybody and we see them either as children of God or potential children of God. Everybody. Made in the image of God, we respect them, we honor them. We treat them in the way God has treated us. There may be those with whom we disagree. Maybe those who have different positions on different issues than we have, but they're children of God or they're potential children of God. They're made in the image of God, and we're going to treat them with decency and respect. You know what I think would be great in a day when there's so much, so much hostility in our country and so much animosity and 
And everybody seems to know the answer to everything. Just ask us. You know what would be wonderful would be to find a church where you could be a Republican, a Democrat, a Libertarian, or an Independent. And you could be in that church worshiping God, studying his word together, and nobody in the church would care where you are or what you think so long as you love Jesus and exalt Jesus and honor the word of God. You know, there are churches... There are churches that if you're not a Democrat, you shouldn't go there because you will not be received. But there are churches that are Republican, that if you're not a Republican, you should not go there. I can tell you what that is. That's a non-church. Because a church is embracing sinners in the name of Jesus and loving them and caring for them and ministering to them. Church is impartial. Churches, seventhly, it's sincere. The word sincere means we're honest with each other. It means we're transparent. I think one of the great banes of most churches I know, I haven't been in many churches in my life, But in most churches I know, particularly in our part of the world, if I can say this, we don't really know how to be honest with each other because we're scared of how people might see us if we're honest. What if I really shared my heart with you? What if I really unfolded my pain before you? What if I really told you about my struggles? I prayed this morning in my prayer time. I prayed. God, I don't know how many years I have to live. I don't even know how many years I have to serve as pastor here. Months or weeks. Don't know. But there is so much failure today in ministry among ministers. And I know my own heart and it's corruption. And I just prayed, God, God, don't let me fail. Don't let me fail you. Don't let me fail these people I love. We shouldn't hide our hearts from each other. We shouldn't hide our struggles from each other. We should learn how to be transparent with each other. And when we live with the wisdom of God, this is what James says. A harvest, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. We never gather on a Sunday when there are lots of people who are Struggling with lots of issues. And yet I think, I think that we fail to talk with one another about those issues because we don't want other people to see how we're struggling. We want to present a happy face, a pretty picture. 
You know, one of the things the church has struggled with since the 1950s, Southern Baptist churches particularly, is that we've forgotten that God called the church to be intergenerational and multi-generational. If you're a young parent raising young children, you know what you most need second only to a day off? You know what you need? You need older believers in your life who've gone before you to help you. If you're an older believer, what do you know what you need? You're my age, or maybe you're even as old as Irby. You know what you need? You need to be honest about with younger believers. You need to be honest with them about your struggles, your growth, your challenges. We need each other. And most of all, we need, we need the grace of God. I'll tell you why. Wisdom doesn't come overnight. The wisdom of the word of God doesn't come overnight. It comes as we grow in Christ. The older you get as a believer, the more wisdom you receive. So there are people in this congregation who have a lot more wisdom than I have. But I've been at it long enough that God, by his grace, has given me some wisdom. You know what comes with wisdom as you get older, as you look back? Regrets. You look back and said and say, if I had known, if I had known. That's why we need each other to help each other. And it's why we need the grace of God to know as a child of God, even in the regrets, even in the failures, even when we act with the wisdom of the world and act foolish. We're never beyond the reach of the grace of God. I'm using a devotional during the season of Lent by Paul David Tripp. Paul David Tripp has been through all kinds of struggles that I won't go into. Uh, not, not moral stuff, but just physical stuff. He's just had a tough time. So he wrote this devotional for the Lenten season. And he says that what What allows us to look back on our lives from the perspective of the wisdom of God is that the whole time we're looking back, we're looking up to God and knowing that God gives us grace. Listen to what he writes and I'm done. I wished I could say I asked you, but I didn't. I wished I could say I reached for you, but it didn't happen. I wish I had thought that I needed help, but my mind was elsewhere. I wish I had sought your wisdom, but I saw myself as wise. I wished I had leaned on you, but I thought I was standing up straight. I wished I had cast myself on your grace, but in the mirror I looked like someone who didn't need it. I wished I'd begun each day with you, but I was too busy. I wished I'd ended the night with you, but I was too tired. I wished I'd spent more time in your word, but I had people to see, places to go. I wished I had looked ahead to a pathway I couldn't traverse alone, but I was too focused on the here and now. 
I am older now with more life behind me than in front of me. I mourn my assessments of strength, my appraisals of wisdom, tagging myself righteous, my quest for independence. I regret the moments lost, opportunities grown, dreams now faded. I would spend my last days in the cloud of despondency, beating myself up, hoping to get back what is forever gone if it were not for your grace. I would not be able to look up as I look back. You went to the cross. Listen to this. You went to the cross knowing every choice I would make, all that your mercy would need to cover. I can be honest about my choices. I can confess it all. And I can rest because your grace is that thorough and your love has that much power. Through the years, I've learned that to find the strength to look back I need the grace to look up. Father, we want your wisdom. And we don't want the wisdom of the world. So help us, even this day, to look up. And as we look up, help us to see the cross where we see the greatest demonstration of holy love, righteous love, forgiving and gracious love in all of time and for all of eternity. And help us on this day to know that when we have looked to the cross, we have received from Jesus all that we will ever need for all that we will ever face. In his name, amen.